Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Netflix's Fair Play. Joining me today, a man who I think would be perfectly happy if his fiance made more money than him. It's Fred Cobb. Fred, how's it going? Oh, I'm doing terrific. Still uh, trying to uh, rebound a little, little bit after watching all of those Sundance releases, which are hopefully all uh, with distributors now and which are going to be available for everyone to see very soon. Yeah, Fred and I partook in the, uh, uh, thanks to the kind folks at Sundance who decided that even though like they're back to having an in-person festival after, you know, Omicron knocked them out in 2022, they, uh, they still kept a, a pretty, a fairly substantial virtual offering. So uh, Fred and I decided why not get ahead on the year a little bit. And uh, we both bought, all, we both did the a la carte thing. We, and we both got tickets to like, you know, a couple of same movies, some different. And uh, the one that I think we both had the most to say about was Fair Play. So we figured why not record an episode about that and hold it for later in the year. So, uh, you know, who, who knows uh, which, of, which of what we saw actually like, you know, ended up making a big splash later in the actual release calendar, but Fair Play got bought for $20 million by Netflix. And things on Netflix tend to get seen by a lot of people though. By the time people are listening to this, who knows, like uh, a bunch of, you know, uh, riffraff like me might've gotten kicked off their parents' Netflix account and might have trouble seeing it. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> they, they are cracking down on password sharing now, but, uh, but yeah, so fair play. You is- should probably mention by the way. So by the way, this guy bought a $20 ticket to just watch this movie at Sundance once, but he is putting <laughs> up a huge tantrum now about his Netflix account. That is a caveat that I feel like uh, that should be made clear to our audience here. That's true. And that's the thing. It's like, I, I have to think about like, if it's going to be like worth it for me. And I think I'm just going to give into it. I mean, I make enough money that like, yes, I can afford to pay $15.95 a month for something else, I guess. Uh, but it's like, there's not a lot of TV that I'm watching on Netflix now. I don't know about you, Fred. Like, this is not a lot of like actively airing TV series, but then it's like I, I think about the fact that like there are a couple of theaters around me that do get Netflix releases and that will put them in theaters. Not not even every now and then. Not just like how Glass Onion got to play for a week uh, at the a, a, at the AMC. Like there are like some local theaters around here that will get that. Like I saw The Irishman here. I or something like that, you know. And every now and then it's like I I I would go do that whenever I have the opportunity to. But then like what's but not but that's only a f- small fraction of the big Netflix stuff. And there are other Netflix movies I want to see and it's like i feel like even if they don't have an active tv show that i'm that passionate about it's probably worth it for me just if there's like if they even get like you know seven movies or something seven if they get 10 new movies or whatever think about that that like you know what would i pay for that if they were in theaters i mean actually i have amca list so that's a weird question but like i i i, I well no i would go to my local theater if they had it there i guess what my, my my smaller theater if i pay 10 bucks for like seven other movies there that's like you know that's already like a third of the price of Netflix for the whole year. And if I can watch a handful of old movies on there and I can watch, you know, one or two series and like, I've probably got my money's worth. So I'm just bitching and moaning. Cause like, you know, I, why not? I, I mean, I, I sound like, but I do, you, your point is well taken. I do sound kind of like a college sophomore or something, <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I do, I do like the chance to like kind of do this at Sundance. It's just fun. You know, you see the buzzy stuff. It's like, Oh, that looks cool. It'd be kind of cool to see this before, uh, before, you know, the public discourse has a chance to really shape your opinion too much. And I think that's part of the fun of doing something like this. And I did read a few reviews of it, but for the most part, it's kind of cool to like, get on the record about something when it's really only being talked about in like small pockets, right? I mean, we haven't been too influenced by like other takes or anything like that, I would say. So it's a little different from something I would normally be talking about with Fred that would have already just gotten a straight up wide release. Fair Play is the, it's the debut feature from writer, director, Chloe DeMont. She, uh, she, she's directing a couple more per, per, fairly well-known faces uh, speaking of Netflix, uh, Phoebe Dinevore, who a lot of people might know from Bridgerton. She, she plays Emily and Alden Ehrenreich, who, uh, a lot of people, most people probably know from Solo, but, you know, had his breakout in the movies when he was in 
uh, the Cohen brothers, uh, Hail Caesar, uh, he plays Luke. And uh, Luke and Emily are a couple who, they're a cohabitating couple who work at the same hedge fund in New York City. And just the fact that they have that relationship and work at that company is against the company policy. So they keep it on the down low. Mm-hmm. In, in, in a rather... In a rather crazy, uh, wacky scene, they get engaged in like kind of the opening scene of the movie while at, uh, I think, a uh, Luke's cousin's wedding or something like that. And uh, it's, it seems and it, so they're they're all happy about that. It, it, they're riding high. It seems like Luke is on track for a promotion at work. And uh, Emily is very happy for him. And then one night when they're basically already in bed, uh, their boss named Campbell, played by Eddie Marson, in, which is just like a, a, like a terrifyingly great performance, Fred. Oh, he, yeah. He, oh, yeah. He summons her to a bar, and I think, and, and well, at first, actually, at first, she's called by another coworker, and it's surprised when she shows up. Uh, Campbell is there. He talks about her and how promising he thinks she is, and uh, we, we she gets home and informs Luke that hey, that promotion you thought you were getting, I got it. And uh, he is outright supportive at first, but what to say that facade begins to crack because the movie goes on and uh, Emily kind of gains power and uh, Luke kind of maybe gets lost in the shuffle at the, of this hedge fund a little bit. Fred, you know, I saw in some places people kind of describe this movie as like uh, an erotic thriller. Uh, some people kind of described it as maybe like a, you know, a, a, something that might subvert your expectations if you go in expecting what that genre might be. Some people wanted it to be more of that. Did you see this more as like a, a uh, high finance thriller or like a romantic or um, erotic relationship thriller. Uh, I, w- I, w- I guess I would ask first, like, how did you most appreciate this movie? From what perspective? Uh, a couple of different ones. And that's really important what you mentioned earlier, that you get to see movies at Sundance before they get shaped by the public discourse. There's not even a preview available for this yet. And for a lot of movies that we see throughout the year, we go to the movie theater and we see previews over and over again. So by the time we actually go to the movie theater to see that particular we've built movie, we've built up we what we think it's going to be <laughs> what to expect. exactly yeah and you don't get that at sundance because all you read is that blurb that they have on their website and there's really nothing else to draw from i saw those uh, i saw those two they, i saw i saw those two actors shit goes down in a hedge fund and i'm like i'm in let's do it let's see what happens yeah absolutely and i mean it's really effective to sell people on very simple stuff like that like people that you know are in the movie you mentioned uh the fact that it's uh, set at a major New York hedge fund. Uh, there have been plenty of movies uh, throughout the years that have been really exciting uh, with a similar setting. But I do think it's kind of important for people to kind of understand what this movie is and what it isn't, uh, because otherwise people might approach this with wrong expectations and get caught off guard by some of the stuff that happens here. And I want to start with a disclaimer. Obviously, we're two guys talking about a movie that at the very least uh, does have a very strong identity surrounding feminism, women in the workplace. Yeah, gender politics the in the workplace. Yeah. Politics in the workplace, exactly. Uh, having said that, this is not, and I think it's very important to highlight that, uh, explicitly a Me Too movie. It's not, because I think it's very critical here that uh, Emily, for the vast majority of Fair Play, is actually not a victim. She's the one in control. She's the one who gets the professional opportunities. Uh, she is the one who is suddenly in charge of Luke at the workplace. There's, yeah, there's which, also there's also a moment in this movie where uh, there, there, some of her the other higher ups that are at her level, that the level she's at now, want to go celebrate something. One of them like shouts down another one for suggesting a strip club, but she takes it upon herself to say, "No, let's go to the strip club." <laughs> exactly, and, and that's I think a key aspect of this. She has agency. Like mm-hmm. She gets to make her own decisions. And one of her major decisions in this movie that really 
heavily informs what happens during these two hours is that she tries to keep appeasing Luke because he is obviously very unhappy about this whole situation. It's like she tries to make it better for him. She tries to downplay her promotion. Uh, she tries to get him opportunities to maybe get the next one when somebody else inevitably gets kicked out of the company for making a huge mistake. She keeps trying to spice up their sex life. And he's just being an asshole and moping the entire time. And I think it's a very interesting way to play with that dynamic where she is the far more active character uh, while he is really just being a passive, mopey wimp for the most part who can't cope with this new situation in their lives. And, 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 and entitled at the same time. Uh, yeah, and I, I guess, and I, and, I, and I gave that whole spiel about like, you know, um, maybe not being too affected by what other people are saying, but I, I, the reception of this is really positive and I liked it. So I was kind of curious to see what a negative review might be. So I did find like one right negative review from a, a, a one of the um, publications I sometimes read the playlist, and uh, that that critic was like, I think that critic kind of came in wanting it to be uh, more of an erotic thriller, and he just kind of he found it a little predictable in a way to, to go down the route it did, and he was like, so I guess he was kind of suggesting like, what if this had been something different, and as opposed to just him Luke becoming impotent, he was actually like turned on by this, and maybe she was maybe she actually was successful in helping him more, and maybe it blows up in some other way. And maybe there is a version of the movie that they could go down that path and it could be interesting or something like that. But I actually really like all the Aaron Reich's performance. I think it's an interesting uh, re return to uh, the big screen for him. He hadn't really been in a, he, you know, he's done a couple of TV shows, but hadn't really been in the movie since for about five years now. And I, I kind of enjoyed seeing this guy who I think saw himself as like somewhat of an ally. Again, even though this isn't a Me Too movie, he, 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 he sees himself as the kind of guy that would be happy for his significant other in this situation. And he's he is a he is probably um uh like six years older than or six or five years older I think than uh, Phoebe Dinovore, and so I think we're led to believe he probably is actually have does actually have a few years on her in this, and and so in theory he maybe would be in line for promotion, but I think they do a good job of making it clear that like she has an aptitude for this, and he might just be like one of these guys in a sea of white guys that isn't have doesn't have anything spectacular about him, and I just thought like and again I I. I, I really was, I really did not really care that much about anything. Like it's just, they're, they're just a couple, you know? Yeah. They might have like uh, somewhat of a spicy sex life that spiced up a little bit for the purposes of the movie. But like, I think when things, you know, uh, when, when, when something like this happens uh, on the work front, like it makes sense that maybe that, that might take a hit there. And I, I didn't, I didn't necessarily expect it to be like a bunch of crazy sex scenes throughout just because I had heard a couple of publications describe it as an erotic thriller. I was very into the workplace dynamic of this and I quite enjoyed seeing how like seeing how the movie was able because i mean you you work in finance so you don't necessarily work for a hedge fund fred you might maybe you pick up a, a few more terms here and there than i might if i watch something like this but i think the sign of something that's done really well is when like it can appeal to an audience that doesn't really know all the terms and you know enough to know that she knows her shit and uh and i and, and i enjoyed seeing that become apparent and seeing him just like be so he's so confident at the beginning in a way that like i felt like was almost like more confident and charming in a way than he even was in solo, even though I know you do like that movie. And I, I, I didn't have a huge objection yes. to him personally in it, but like the way that Luke is at the, for the first 20 minutes of this movie, I actually thought that might've been like the, the most confident I'd ever seen all Alden Aaron. Right. So it was really, it was really fascinating to watch that, like to watch that, 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 that the person in there slowly died throughout the movie. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And that's a big bait and switch to an extent mm -hmm. because I mean, we both knew the premise to an extent, and we knew that she would be the one to get the promotion. Mm -hmm. 
But it's very interesting because initially it seems like he's the one who's getting pegged for the big job. Mm -hmm. But we find out eventually that people kind of think of him as a joke in this company, which makes me wonder why people ever thought that he would be the first in line for that promotion. And it's kind of fascinating because I was noticing something throughout the movie that uh, the director, Chloe DeMont, explicitly confirmed in her Q&A. Mm. I mean, Alden Ehrenreich, the way he plays his character, obviously, like you said, he is super entitled, pathetic, like tries really hard to uh, like regain control in their relationship. He takes these online seminars about how to become more successful and more confident. But I do think there is a small iota of sympathy that DeMont actually has for him. And she does say that in the Q&A in the sense that maybe he's not even a terrible person or he doesn't start out as a terrible person, but the way he was raised as a sort of slave to his upbringing, what societal expectations are, uh, he was always raised with the mindset that he needs to be a provider, that he needs to be the one to get the better professional opportunities so he can shine in front of his friends and his fiance. And obviously that doesn't happen and he just completely loses it as a result. And that doesn't excuse any of his behavior. Don't get me wrong. But I do think there is a realization here that there are plenty of people like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think it's an interesting thought exercise to think about like people in like your group of friends or your social circle of people you know at work. If they were to find themselves in a similar situation, if they would handle it more diplomatically or if they would have a similar kind of meltdown almost where they need to desperately like find ways to work even harder and prove themselves on the job. Uh, to show that they can shine as well. Yeah, and I, I, at first I thought maybe we'd do a spoiler section for this movie, but I actually don't really care to because it's going to be on. It's going to it's on Netflix as of the time people have the ability to listen to this, and it's not it's not one where they have to really commit to a trip to the theater or buy a ticket. So we'll talk a little bit more about that meltdown later on. But like I'll too, I guess. But like I would say it's interesting because I, th I think you I think maybe that interview you did see of her uh, uh, might have a little more insight as to like some of the more. Uh, some of the more intense things that happened in the latter half of the movie, but I, it's interesting. You made the comment that she made a comment or you observed that she made a comment about saying that like she, there was actually might be some level of sympathy that she or the movie might have for him. Because I did think that, I think the thing, the fact that he took these self-help, these self-help classes was actually kind of interesting. Uh, Cause like they could have like shown him going down a different kind of spiral with something like that. As far as I could tell, it was just like him genuinely trying to make himself better. It wasn't like he was watching like some toxic, like, you know, uh, like men's rights activist type of dude online or something like that, you know? And, uh, and like, I mean, again, I think obviously he's the far more problematic one here, but at one point it's like, you can almost see, yeah, like, you, you can see Emily just being like, you know, oh, just take a shortcut. I'll help you. And like, don't, why are you even bothering with that? And it's like, he probably feels like, look, I'm genuinely trying to like do the right thing here. And like, uh, improve my and work on myself since I didn't get this promotion. And you're just like being like, eh, whatever, I'm so good at this. I'll just like help you like, you know, uh, skip your way to the top. And I can, I can see why that might, why that might've like rubbed him the wrong way in that moment. And it's like, uh, maybe, maybe that, that, and that was just like kind of a push that he needed to like keep going off the deep end. And it's like, yeah, at some point this guy probably took it in stride and then just like, couldn't hold it together. And it's, it's inexcusable the way he doesn't hold it together, but it's like, I can kind of see how it's like, there's a moment where you can go down a couple of different paths when you're just one of these interchangeable white guys and you can be a problematic one, or you can like, you know, hunker down and be like a, you know, be a, be, be an okay one. And he, he kind of hit, he kind of like, you know, goes down that darker path at a point here where you see a version of him that like, isn't as bad as the version we end up getting you see a world on which that version exists. And what I do find very interesting here, because Emily actually does have agency for most of the movie. Mm -hmm. Let's put the last 20, 30 minutes aside yeah. because that is a whole separate conversation. Right. But 
you can make the argument that part of the dynamic that unfolds, at least initially, mm -hmm. some of that is on her as well. I mean, she is mm -hmm. now his boss at work. And, and it's just, point, it's kind of, it's kind of inappropriate at that point. Like they really should break up or one of them needs to leave. Yeah. Either they should break up or somebody should leave the company. And that is a choice they both make not to reveal that relationship, not to come clean or for somebody to just go and stop this being both a personal and professional relationship. Because there are clearly massive conflicts of interest. Because, and because by the time, by the, by the time at which she like suggests that he leave, they're like, they're, they're a little too fractured at that point for it to actually like, yes. you know, make sense. Like it, they do eventually get to that point, but it's like, Hey, you guys should have like been smart enough to like figure this out earlier. You know? Yeah. They want to have their cake and eat it too. On one hand, they're this very successful power couple now at this hedge fund and they're both going places. Or, so it seems at the very beginning, but they also still want to stay in that relationship that was inappropriate from the get-go because mm -hmm. these company policies exist for a reason. And then, of course, it's taken to a whole different level once she is actually his direct supervisor and his professional performance is also tied to their personal relationship at home. Yeah, And there's a reason why companies prevent that kind of stuff from happening because it clearly affects both the work environment and the personal environment at home in very significant ways. Oh, hundred um, percent. Uh, speaking of that work environment, uh, what did you think about the world that, that Chloe Demont created here with this company? And because I mean, I, that, I, I honestly, it actually almost goes beyond that. Like, I think she just, I think we've seen movies about fi high finance, but like, I thought she found a really interesting corner of it to explore. Uh, what, whether it be about like uh, the, whether it be about this company or the characters in it, what kind of struck you as you like kind of saw this, this kind of web that Emily was having to work her way through? Because I actually really thought she did a great job of world building. It was also really funny in the Q&A after the movie, um, mm -hmm. there was a question to the uh, male co-workers. They were all on stage. Mm. <laughs> and somebody was asking, what kind of research did you do to uh, be able to play these terrible finance bros as well as you did? Rich Sumner um, was a madman. Rich, I, I was just about to say, yeah, for Rich Sumner, I think that question answers itself because uh, that is not necessarily a similar work environment because obviously it's 50, 60 years ago uh, and a different industry altogether. But I do think there are some kind of parallels that you can draw here, right? Like it's a very uh, intense work environment. People are expected <laughs> to perform at a high level. Um, the male to female ratio but, actually might have been more uh, more slanted towards the male in the movie that was set in the 2000 in in, in, in the late in, in the 2020s as opposed to Mad Men, which is actually kind of funny. Yeah, in the 1960s, that that is that is actually a very valid observation. Yeah, um, but it, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting as well because you mentioned that I kind of overlap with this industry a little bit uh, in what I do for a living. Uh, that said, my work work hours are much more reasonable and I don't work for a commission and, you work um, and I also don't remember it and I work from home and I also don't remember ever getting a check for half a million dollars uh, <laughs> for, for one single good business decision that I made um, <laughs> that would be kind of nice right that would be very nice uh, yeah but but I do think that there is an added layer here that plays into uh, Emily's and Luke's relationship uh just going by the fact that they work in this high performance work environment where everything that they do is risky. Um, they can lose just huge amounts of money in minutes if they make the wrong decision. And obviously once they reach a point where Emily tries really hard to put Luke in the spotlight that he is actually uh, just as high performing as her, that he can do the job as well. 
that's when we kind of come to realize that he's just someone who's being kept around because I guess it may, I don't know if this was ever explicitly stated in such a way, but I think any Marson's character, Campbell says that it was like a favor to his father or something, that that was the only reason he employed him in the first place. I don't know if he said father, but I think he said friend, at least I think he might've said friend even. It's just like, Hey, I might've said friend. I don't remember hundred percent, but not somebody he would have hired just uh, based on his resume, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do find that interesting because, I mean, this guy just keeps getting humiliated. Like the way his the superiors talk about him behind his back. Um, There's even one moment where they actually talk about a bad deal he had made in the past. I think, I think when like, I think like Emily might have even been trying to talk him up when he was kind of in the room. And then they just make some comment about some bad deal he made, like in lot where he lost him a bunch of money, like from before the events of the movie. And it's just like, it's just like very, very, you know, like you said, uh, humiliating and um, humbling and all that stuff. Right. And then Campbell also turns on her at one point when she bakes. Well, he actually messes it up. Doesn't he call he her like a, fu- a fucking, does he call her a fucking C word? Like, it, it's just like, and that guy like barely raises his voice. He's still terrifying without raising his voice. So it just like, it almost really jumps out the one time he does. It was something like really it's, shocking. It, I don't remember if it was. It's either the C word or B word. It was one of the two. I can't remember. B word or B word. It was one of the two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really startling at the moment because yes, like Eddie Marson doesn't have to raise his voice or scream at her. He's like that powerful. It's just like yeah. this really like sort of cold cutting voice where you realize all of a sudden that just one simple mistake uh, where she puts her faith in somebody else, the guy that she's engaged to, hmm. uh, could really hurt her professionally. And at that point, again, the conflicts of interest come into play where you have to ask yourself, do I want to being successful at this company? And do I want to make sure that my bosses see me in the best possible light? Or do I stick with my fiance who's being a total asshole and who's ignoring me at home just because he's jealous of the success that I'm having? And obviously you can see why she would start to prioritize the job and why she would start to become more involved with her life as opposed to coming back home to him to try to keep working on their relationship. Yeah, the you know, they're so naive that they thought they could just keep the relationship going where it's like one of them has to rely on the other for like something that could lose their their, their company fifty million dollars. Like it's 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 wild. I mean, I get I, understandably they thought that like she that she could she thought she could help them get to a point where they were on the level and they didn't have to like worry about that because they could just be peers. But like you know, it's just very 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 short sighted. Um, and I I do like by the way just very. Yeah. Very quickly, I do like how that whole reveal plays out early in the movie because we don't know that they work together for a while um, because they're just at the wedding. They're really into each other. Uh, they get engaged. He gives her the ring. Mm-hmm. He leaves the ring at home. And then they and then they leave like one shot of it being on the kitchen table. Yes. Yeah, and then and then they leave the building to go to work. And he says, "Do you need something at the? Uh, do you do you want something from the corner store or something like that?" He's going to get bagel or coffee or something. And it, it's a little unclear. I can't remember if they do that every morning necessarily, uh, because like they show up, they kind of show up to the building kind of at the same time, but it's like, is that a strategic thing where they never want to show up at the same time? So one of them always makes a stop along the way. They take different routes. I don't know, but like, they clearly like don't want to like be seen walking to the building at the exact same time, you know? Yeah. So it's clearly well thought out and it, it looks like they've had a long time to work on this. I mean, they live together. So clearly they've been together for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that point, when you have a status quo in your relationship, you can spend time to work on these things. Um, and that's why I thought it was very well established early on that they were at a very good point in their relationship. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. I mean, everything seems to be almost perfect during the first 15, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And then it's really just like one major change in their dynamic that messes up everything. And I thought that was a really fascinating way to kind of introduce that early on. Uh, yeah, I and I, I just you, and you mentioned them like even leaving work there. Like I, I really appreciated the production design in this movie, uh, which I mean is not something I is I'm always quick to point out. But like, uh, unfortunately, I, I'm hoping to make it back to New York this year. I haven't been in um, since December, New Year's Eve 2019. And uh, but like I spent like, you know, from basically almost every year from 2012 to 2019, I went to New York at least like at least once, sometimes some, sometimes twice in a year. And like I stayed with different friends at different kind of apartments there. And, you know, the apartments you stay with people that are in like their 20s, like are just like not the kinds you normally actually see depicted in movies. So, I mean, this is this is on the nicer end of where people in their 20s might live because these people are making good money. But it was like a very different kind of apartment and living, living situation to actually see depicted in a movie like this. And I, and I know people that worked in finance in New York. So it's like, you kind of get the, you get this lifestyle that they're leading that the, the, the times a day they're leaving the place, the actual, like uh, the actual effort that they put into maintaining that place and making it look like a home where you would ever entertain someone. And I don't even really think that's just because like they aren't inviting people from work over because they don't want them to find out they live together. They just work such bad hours. that like, why are we going to put a bunch of money into interior design? Like it just felt very lived in <laughs> and, and, and like, and, and made these people feel like very like authentic you know, authentic characters to that specific world they were working in, even just while they're sitting at home, messing around on their computer, like, or like making love. Yeah. And again, it's even more impressive because Coydemont is a first time filmmaker. And oh, he- I mean, it's very tricky to make economical filmmaking seem grand and intense in a way. And I think the movie did a really good job of making the most out of what I would say are probably limited resources. Um, yeah, they, they, really they, they actually probably did this kind of on the, the they actually probably kind of did this on the cheap. There's really only like, there's less than 10 locations in this movie, I almost think. Yeah, and it's kind of impressive because, again, they've put a lot of these types of like Wall Street movies uh, over the years. <laughs> Oddly enough, I watched American Psycho uh, last night for the first time, mm-hmm. which is another movie that's set in that kind of environment and another movie that premiered at Sundance, incidentally. Um, I didn't know American Psycho was a Sundance movie. <laughs> It was, yeah. This was when Christian Bale was a, a no-name actor who was really only known for his performance in uh, Empire of the Sun. Little and woman. This was like his first big, yeah. This was like his first big breakthrough lead performance uh, mm-hmm. in a movie. Um, I, let me ask you about but, the. But, but, yeah, but that being said, yeah. Sorry, I was just gonna say. I guess fair play in that sense does play in the tradition of some of the like big finance movies uh, set in that environment like wall street for example or american psycho where you kind of do get a little bit of insight into how that industry actually works while also simultaneously obviously making it a little bit hyperbolic so you can tell a really intense thriller with that material let me, let me ask you, because I, I, I don't think I, I, I went out and I did watch one interview on YouTube of Chloe DeMont, and it was one where I think it was more like, um, it was also at Sundance, maybe not with as much of the cast as you thought. And one of the questions that the interviewer asked was like basically telling her like a couple times within his question, like, oh, I know this is very personal for you. This is very personal for you. Did, did she say anything in, in, in the interview you watched? Like, did she, did she work in this world at all? Uh, no, but I do remember that she said that she identified with Emily in a way because she had also been in relationships uh, where she felt the need to sort of diminish herself mm. uh, to make the guy feel good about himself because he may not have been as professionally successful as she was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that she drew some uh, of the character dynamics from that. She said she very explicitly said like nothing as uh, intense or insane 
as what happens in fair play ever transpired in her life. But I do think that there are a lot of real world examples, obviously, where you do have these kind of dynamics in a relationship where somebody is more successful professionally than the other. Um, and it leads to all kinds of conflicts that people need to resolve. And yeah, she drew some experience from, from that for the movie. You mentioned insane there. Let's get to some of that insane stuff. And you also mentioned just her kind of like, you know, maybe making themselves smaller in the relationship, which in, in a way maybe Emily does try to do a little bit. But as you kind of mentioned earlier, like as the movie goes on, it's understandable why she's going to prioritize work and kind of fitting in because this is a very it's a, it's a precarious situation that she is in, even even though it's a promotion. I, I think you can almost you almost need two hands to count the amount of times you see someone in this movie like crying because they've just kind of blown it in the company and they know their days are numbered. Uh, so it's understandable. She's going to kind of do whatever it takes to get into the good graces of Campbell and these other guys that are a little more made men than maybe than some of the others, though it really seems like no one is actually safe there. Uh, besides, besides Campbell, even if like the rich Sumner guy seems like he might be a little more experienced, like they're all kind of like working at that same level below Campbell. And she, she, she needs to start like, you know, acting like one of the guys a little more and being a little more confident going out, doing her stuff on her own that like uh, that Luke is going to have to watch from a distance. And I just say eventually, like, he just, like, hits quite the breaking point. And I feel like this movie goes from zero to 100 very fast. And I feel like that was a little bit of the word, even though the word out of Sundance is pretty positive. Like, uh, some of the first reactions I saw were, like, you know, mixed on the final act, Fred. And I I, I kind of was, too, at the moment. But, like, I, 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 and who knows, at the time people are listening to this, maybe Cat Person will have gotten some kind of release. But at the time I watched this, I had watched, I, I had very strong opinions on the movie Cat Person, which like, I mean, hell, if, if, if the third act had been as good as the first two in that one, it may, it may very well have ended up in my top 10 for 2023. It's early, but like, I really enjoyed it that much through two acts. And I, and so fair play, like I'm really enjoying. And then, it, and similarly, like, I think has like a change in its speed in a similar way to Cat Person in the last act. But I, in a way that like, even if I was unsure about it didn't make me like retroactively mad in the way the cat person one did. So I pondered it for a bit. I'm like, mm-hmm. why, why, why is that? Why did, why was I so mad about how cat person went in this one very distinct direction in the third act in such a way that made me turn it into like almost a two-star movie for me. Whereas like fair play, I'm like, I still really like this whole entire enterprise. I'm just a little iffy on, I think that's because they were setting this up all along. I mean, maybe like, you know, they are planting the seeds for what Luke is going to do basically from the outset it's not really doing anything that's not really true to the character it's just kind of going out there in like a pretty outrageous way where this guy just like you know just goes just basically has a mental breakdown in the offices here and uh it doesn't feel unearned even if like the actions he's taking feel just more exaggerated than basically anything else in the movie that came before it which was even if big big money was getting thrown around all the emotions felt a bit more grounded so I'm curious, what is your reaction when Alden Ehrenreich just like walks into this, uh, w- walks into this office drunk and blows his life up? I mean, this. See, I, I feel like you actually uh, kind of jumped the gun here a little bit because okay. there is another scene that happens a little earlier where he goes into Campbell's office and basically gives him this two-minute pitch about why he should get the promotion when somebody else gets fired. Did you think that was going to um, work? I did not, but I also wasn't sure where he was going initially because mm. at first I was thinking, huh, maybe he actually does have a really good business idea that he's trying to pitch here because there are times throughout the movie where he's pursuing a bunch of like potential like risky uh, stuff that might make the company a lot of money. So maybe okay. he's found something that he's really confident in and he's trying to pitch him on that. 
And then instead, he basically goes on this whole tirade about hero worship and how Campbell is basically God's gift to Earth and that everything he's ever done was about wanting to work for him one day. He even gets on his knees and begs him. So uncomfortable. Very clear, obviously, that Campbell, for as much of an asshole as he is, he is very consistent in that he values strength. He values people who are cutthroat, who are sharks, just like him. Ever question whether Luke was actually that? Here, he very clearly proves that he is not. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I think it's all over for him at the company anyway, because he does this in full view in front of everyone. They all see him pull this off. Uh, they're all aghast and embarrassed on his behalf. So it's very clear that he no longer has the future uh, at that company. Word obviously travels fast on the streets, so a whole bunch of other people are going to know about this. So when he actually stumbles into the client meeting drunk uh, and sabotages uh, both a a client relationship that they're trying to build and his own career, I think at that point, uh, already laid the groundwork for, uh, yeah, no longer really being a factor at that company anyway. So I don't think it really comes out of left field. It's just kind of the next logical step at that point. Yeah, I guess I had forgotten about that moment for a second. It's like, I guess it's... I, and I can't, it goes a little bit back to what I was saying earlier, where it's like he is kind of earnestly trying to work on himself. And it's just like, yeah, maybe that doesn't, maybe that doesn't entitle you to anything. But like when, when, when it, when it feels like nothing is really getting better for him when he spends, you know, apparently a few thousand dollars on these like leadership classes and uh, is still keeping his head down at work, even if he's still just unimpressive to a lot of these guys. When it, when, I mean, I, I don't, we don't have an exact timeline of everything in this movie. It seems like it probably isn't it's probably only taking place over the course of a couple months. So again, like burying your head after you don't get one promotion and then losing it after a couple months, you shouldn't really get that much sympathy. But like at the same time, it's like kind of makes sense that at some point he just like uh, is a little impatient, is a little entitled. And he's like, all right, I got to try something else. I got to just appeal to this guy's ego and it doesn't work. And it's like, yep, you're right. I, I guess you're right, Fred. It's like, doesn't really have much else to do. So I, and that's fair to say, maybe him barging into the conference room like that, Maybe that, like, especially given that we'd already seen a lot of, like, you know, building tensions between him and Emily, that maybe isn't so out of nowhere. Uh, that scene is either the day of or the day before, like, their engagement party that they're, that Emily's mom is throwing really against her will. He still shows up to mm-hmm. that. Um, and just, they, they, they this, like, they have it out right there at this party. And, and it's just, like, it's, it's kind of wild to see that happening at an engagement party where all the family thinks everything's okay. Um <laughs> assumes they're there for a happy time then uh and and then after that like uh all of a sudden we're back for a second it seems like we're back in the erotic thriller territory where they kind of get on each they 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 start to hook up in the bathroom and then uh emily tries to end the encounter and says stop and uh and and he he continues and you know the they they kind of played it that scene and, and and she calls him out later in the movie and says and says you rape me and she they basically have almost have a have a knife fight in their apartment that they're now moving out of and it just i i guess almost when i guess when i kind of thought like i guess more what i was referring to when i was saying the movie just like kind of goes off the deep end and I, again i don't necessarily mean that pejoratively i was just having trouble thinking of another saying right there i was almost more thinking about like that sequence even after the boardroom sequence as uh, uncomfortable and as humiliating as that was for luke but like i mean to like have it go from like shouting match at an engagement party to a sexual assault to holding one another her holding him at knife part point in their apartment that's a lot and that feels almost outside uh-huh. the, outside the bounds of just like someone having a breakdown in an off in a hedge fund conference room 
So I, I guess I'm curious, what did you think of those choices? Did they end up all working for you? So that's, again, where I think you need to ask yourself what kind of movie Chloe DeMont wanted mm -hmm. to make. Because his professional failures, those are really fascinating to observe because, I mean, you said it yourself. I mean, he's not a bum. He's not lazy. Like, he actually, like, works really hard, and it's just not working out for him. Yeah, he's not great so, at it. And he's, that what he's, not, seems like he's putting in the hours. <laughs> yeah, he's just not very good at it. And I think there are people who can actually relate to that part where – some of us might have had similar frustrations at work where we like put everything into our jobs, but we don't get the rewards that we think that we should be getting. Fair enough. But then, of course, you get to the end and you have to figure out how do you actually resolve the aspect of their relationship? Because clearly they're not getting back together at that point. Uh, I mean, he obviously torpedoed their relationship to a point where there's no coming back from that. But again, that brief moment before things take a turn uh, bathroom where they have that sexual encounter where she is into it, where she's enjoying it. I think that is very clear. And Chloe DeMond even says that in the interview uh, after the movie that there is a part of her, I guess, that is still into him for some reason. And I'm not entirely sure how to explain that except that it kind of plays into some of the sort of erotic thrillers of the 80s and 90s where people still have sex with each other for all kinds of reasons, even though they're mad at each other or they hate each other. Um, it also kind of plays a little bit into uh, the sexual relationship between Ben Affleck and Ana de Amas, for example, in Deepwater last year, where it's very clear that something is seriously wrong in their relationship, but they still actually go to bed together and have sex. So I think at that point, to find a way for why are those two people no longer going to be together if there is still some kind of sexual chemistry there uh, at least it seems that way and then of course once he makes that choice uh he takes it way too far obviously and it's clear that there is no coming back from that i think you kind of need that as the breaking point where there is really no point of return you set yourself up for that final scene where there is no other choice, really, but for them to end it the way that they do. That well, he's, he, he's delusional enough to think for a second when they're back at the apartment that there might be a chance. And she uh, she puts that to bed. I, the, the, I should also note that, like, uh, I think it's sometime but, but between there in the uh, engagement party scene, like she is seen kind of doing a debrief with Candle and she just th she just uh, throws Luke under the bus. Uh, says yeah. Like, yeah, he, he stalked me. It was, it's been uncomfortable for a while, which. I mean, I think Campbell probably just wanted to believe that because like at the same time, she, I mean, and I guess there's also the idea that maybe he could have like manipulated her and because, but like the fact is she is still kind of like stumping for him throughout some of the movie to him. And then all of a sudden she's kind of back here and saying, yeah, you know, like he's just stalking me and making me uncomfortable and I didn't really know how to handle it. And so she, she throws him under the bus, not really undeservedly given that he tried to end her career. And I think you can think of this as a way as like, you know, I, I think you, as I've thought about it a little more and it's like, it did feel very extreme and it still kind of does maybe my preferred ending to a movie might be something where it's like a little bit more of it is just handled you know in a uh, maybe within the confines of the workspace and she just kind of like you know like maybe maybe i'm not sure how i would feel because like there it is tense it is well done it is well written it is well acted maybe something like where she has to like you know i i don't know if there's a way to do it where it's dramatically satisfying where maybe she just like has to like she's put a position where she just has to fire him or something like that i'm wondering what that movie would feel like you know 
and like is, is, or she has to or, or has to like you know give the go ahead maybe she doesn't have the authority to fire him like maybe campbell might but maybe she has to like you know support it and just kind of choose him over the relationship maybe that's something maybe that might feel more grounded uh but maybe it's not going to elicit the same emotion from the audience i don't know it's just part of me was like uh you know maybe this is going a little further but i can see again why this is all in character and maybe that moment with her with the knife is like her like reclaiming the agency that she had for so much of the movie, but she felt like he had kind of like really tried to take from her at the end. And maybe she still felt rattled even after Campbell let her keep her job, you know? So you can think of, see that as like her just finding some way to just like, you know, finally excise him from her life in a way that felt final to her, I suppose. And I do wonder how much Campbell actually knew because when she tells him that story that he'd been stalking her for months and that she tried really hard to get him off her back. Do you think he believes her? I don't think so. I think you could even maybe make the argument that perhaps he had a hunch all along and that some of his methods during the movie were explicitly meant to sort of drive them apart, uh, a sort of punishment for violating company policy, that he had an inkling that they were doing things they he, weren't supposed to he, do. He knew she was so, so talented. He just like wanted to figure out a way to make it work out that he'd get, she'd stay. So. Yeah, and, that, and get rid of him because mm-hmm. apparently he wasn't a huge fan uh get-go. So this might have been a perfect opportunity for him to uh, rid himself of the guy uh, and destroy his career in the process. I mean, Eddie Marsden's performance, again, the, the guy is really fantastic and manipulative in this movie to an extent where you can never be quite sure how much he really knows and how much awareness he has. Because I was just going to say, he has a weird face that doesn't even move that much, but still says a lot. It, it was just, I, I just really had fun every I just really enjoyed it every time he was on screen. And I, I didn't buy for a second that he would be tricked by these two underlings essentially like doing this like under his nose for several years mm-hmm. that seemed out of character so I, I do wonder about that so there, there's some interesting layers here that i didn't even consider that much when i was watching it but now when you talk about it a little bit you do kind of wonder how much of this was actually uh intentional on his part yeah um fred anything else about fair play we didn't touch on yet that you wanted to discuss uh I, i'm just really excited that uh it's going to find an audience hopefully because that is the nice thing about Netflix. We had the conversation earlier that they're clearly making a lot of mistakes in their business model. I'm also not a huge fan of the fact that they haven't realized yet that binging TV shows just isn't as good to conducting uh, social media conversations as releasing episodes on a week by week basis. Uh, But I do think they do a very good job of acquiring some of these smaller titles uh, that might have a chance to break through. Uh, via streaming, because I don't know if people would necessarily go to the movie theater for this, uh, but these are two very popular actors. Uh, Phoebe Dynavor, again, she was on Bridgerton. Uh, that is something that Netflix audiences obviously know about. Yeah, there's so some synergy there. It makes sense. Check, yeah, so they might be inclined when they see that there's a movie starring her on Netflix uh, that they would check that out. Um, Alden Ehrenreich, again, he has he has a profile himself, obviously, from having played Han Solo, uh, a movie that I think that people appreciate more and more. Uh, especially because they haven't released the Star Wars movie in several years now. I think some people and might blame that I, on Solo, in part on Solo, though. <laughs> no, I, th- I think, honestly, I feel like the consensus is more that it was underappreciated, that maybe people were a little harsh on it and that it didn't necessarily get the box office it might have deserved. Uh, I maintain my stance on it. I thought it was really fun. I thought it was really well done, and I thought he played the part well. Um, but w- what I'm saying here really is that I think it's going to played very well on Netflix uh, and it really has a good chance of finding an audience there. Um, 
and who knows? Again, it, it was very critically successful. I saw that IndieWire actually did this massive poll of like 500 critics uh, who voted on their favorite movies at Sundance this year. And this actually came in number one. So this really had a big following there. Um, and if Netflix plays their cards right, who knows? Um, if somebody tells me right now that Phoebe Dynabor might get an Oscar nomination for Best Actress next year, I don't think I would necessarily bet against it. I mean, I don't know if it's super likely, but I think, again, if Netflix campaigns right, maybe. Maybe. I can't really see. I can't really say I know exactly what is always on Netflix's slate as far as what is what are going to be awards players this year besides, like, I mean, David Fincher has a new movie with them, and I don't really know what else there is besides that. So, you know, who knows? If they if they decide to make it, like, just like a, you know, like a, a spring release, then hopefully it, hopefully it blows up, and maybe it's not really an Oscar player. Maybe they maybe they put it out in November or something, and we just have to sit on this episode for 10 months. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe, I'm, sure, I'm sure we'll know in, like, in the next month as of when we're recording this. I'm sure we will know when I will be putting this episode out, but, like, I, I just don't know. But, like, yeah, maybe, maybe they just see, like, hey, does this play with like award season people? I don't know. It's it, but like, if it's doing that well with the critics, then uh, who knows? People like this kind of subject matter um, if, if done right. Um, Fred, is there anything else? Is there anything at this point in time that might be anywhere from February to November that you would like to recommend to people? So I really enjoyed Indiana Jones five, Thought it was a great swan song for Harrison Ford. Really awesome. <laughs> great action. Uh, Third season of White Lotus was a lot of fun. I thought it was really smart to have it set in Thailand this year. No, I'm kidding, obviously. I don't know about any of that stuff yeah. yet. Um, but I am excited for this year in movies. You know, I do think it's nice to start off the year with Sundance because you do get this nice preview of some of the movies that may be coming to theaters, that may be getting streaming releases. Um, and, you know, it sounds a little cheesy, but I think Sundance plays it very well by allowing aren't in Park City to actually participate in the festival mm -hmm. because that means just us regular folks who aren't professional movie critics actually get the same exposure that they do. Uh, we get to see the movie for the very first time uh, early on like they would. To know, the extent that, yeah. When to, they actually, yeah, to yeah. the extent that we want to like pay for them, make it like a second job or something like that because you watch like four or five, I watch three and it's, it's, a, it's a lot when you're like all of a sudden trying to do that on top of like, you know, your daily life whereas like these critics like, I, I can't imagine being them, like, you know, watching 25 movies in five days or something. Uh, oh, good insane. God. Yeah. No, yeah. it's insane. Uh, but uh, well, we're exhausting already. But yeah, yeah, no, just to very quickly wrap up the thought, I do think it's a great opportunity for them to sort of kick open the movie year because there aren't a ton of releases out in January yet. Obviously, people are still kind of catching up on the Oscar releases uh, that came out in December. So I really hope that this is something they keep on doing because. It's a great way to sort of uh, be the gateway almost into the next cinematic year and people get their first few movies in uh, yeah, Sundance. So, yeah, so it's maybe an people, awesome opportunity. Maybe people are listening to this in November of 2023, in which case you might be six weeks away from Sundance tickets going on sale for 2024. So uh, keep that in mind. <laughs> uh, I actually have a recommendation that's like uh, uh, not a time-sensitive one, but like I don't know if Nef Netflix is offering, so it'll probably change by the time this comes around. So I'm going to make one Netflix recommendation and one non-Netflix recommendation because I don't know, because I know one of these is accessible. Uh, one is that uh, Margin Calls on Netflix is J.C. Sandor's film about, it, it came out in 2011, so it's probably a little bit inspired by the financial crash, but it's just like within, it's basically like within this one investment bank, someone kind of catches something and they see impending doom, but they got they, they have 
have a, a certain amount of time through the middle of the night to figure out how they're going to react and uh, minimize the damage and figure out what they're going to do. And it brings in all these different levels of middle management within this investment bank. And uh, it, it's a little weird. I, 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 I guess I recommend it with the caveat that I have not actually like watched a Kevin Spacey movie since we like learned about what we know about Kevin Spacey now. And Kevin Spacey plays a part in this movie, but it also has like a lot of other really interesting performances from uh, people like... Uh, People like Paul Bettany and and Stanley Tucci, Demi Moore, Chance Crawford. So it's a it 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 it's a lot of other interesting performers that like kind of get involved in the movie that are within different positions in this place, and it's very 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 tense and 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 well done. TV recommendation, I'd say, and I probably recommended this at some point last August when I uh, kind of binged through the first season and a half while the second season was airing. I recommend Industry on HBO, uh, in HBO Max. Uh, it, it is set at a basically an investment bank in London where these people kind of like, you know, they're making trades all day, but like kind of f- finding people like the Campbells of the world to like take their money to like invest into things and uh, and focuses on like, like kind of younger people starting out at this bank, but also a couple of the higher ups within the company and uh, just has like some really great young actresses, uh, including uh, one named Marissa Abella, who kind of blew up from the show. She's going to be playing Amy Winehouse in an Amy Winehouse biopic in the next year or so. Uh, Mahala Harold, who people might have seen in Bodies, 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 but she's also going to be in the Sam Esmail movie that's coming to, H- to Netflix. I, I, that, that did get a November release date, uh, Leave the World Behind. Uh, so that's, that's the other thing I'd, I'd forgotten about that I knew Netflix had coming this year, but Mahalo Harold's going to be in that along with Julia Robertson, Marshall Ali. So I just, industry just like incredibly tense. I mean, it's a lot of young people like having sex and doing drugs and stuff, but like, they're also like, you know, trying to make it to this bank. And if, if you kind of like this kind of subject matter, I think, uh, you would really, uh, dig that show. So those are my two recommendations. Uh, Fred, where can people find you on Letterboxd and Twitter? Uh, yes, please do follow me on Letterboxd. Uh, always much appreciated. Uh, that's Fred Kolb, F-R-E-D-K-O-L-B. Uh, I recently finally subscribed uh, to being a patron on Letterboxd. I'm very oh, excited about that because now I can, yeah, because now I can change my movie posters on there. It's it's a really cool feature. I've been playing around with that. Pro is only um, nineteen dollars a year. What what does patron cost? Uh, patron cost forty nine dollars a year. That's not bad. No. I, I, but but I, no, I, but, I mean. Be, I use it so much. I feel like I should probably uh, put a little bit of my money towards making sure that that platform yeah. continues to exist. I got to like actually get caught up on my reviews because I'm constantly, I, I, I'm about like five weeks behind right now. Normally I'm like, I, I fell behind like two months a lot last year, but I got to like be able to stay up to date on my reviews before I can like justify taking the time to fuck around with like my backgrounds and posters and stuff like that on there. Um, <laughs> but I, so highly, I still highly recommend Letterboxd Pro to everyone. It's a great service that people should support. And you know, if you have Pro, you can at least like be a nerd and look at your stats, which I, which I enjoy it for. Uh, so as usual on Letterboxd, I'm Josh Jernavoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on that's on Twitter, Letterboxd. Uh, same thing though. Podcast Twitter is at Real Movie Pod. Podcast email is roundmoviepod at gmail.com. Uh, no idea what's coming up next on the podcast because I have no idea when you're listening to this, but I want to thank all of you for listening. I want to thank Fred for joining and we'll see you next time.